On this week's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Niti Naharaja, Head of Legal for Flip Morris International. She's an advocate for authentic and inclusive leadership, as well as being an authority and influence on many platforms such as LinkedIn on gender equity and equality. Niti, absolutely delighted to have you on the show, the Purpose Led Leadership Podcast. We've only just really connected recently. I've studied and reviewed and watched you from afar on LinkedIn. Some great stuff you seem to be doing. I was recommended to speak to you by a friend, actually, and I'm really excited to sort of delve a bit deeper and get to know you as a person about your journey and I know you've kind of you've had a quite a journey actually so Mm. like I ask all my guests uh if you wouldn't mind try to go back as deep and as far as possible uh talk about your journey to date please if that's okay yeah absolutely so where do I begin um so I have lived in Australia most of my life but I was born over in the UK in Scotland, actually, spent the first part of my life moving around quite a bit, uh, probably until the age of eight. I think I was in a different country probably every second year, probably even less than that, actually. So it was quite disruptive. Um, And then we finally settled in Australia, and I've been here ever since, essentially. Although I did spend five years in London in the 2000s, where I met my husband, and then dragged him back to Australia and um, have had two kids and settled down uh, back in Melbourne. Uh, I'm a lawyer by trade, uh, so I started in law firms uh, in the early 2000s, moved in house about nine years ago and have been here ever since. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's, that's I guess, my life journey and, and work. Um, yeah. Fantastic. So obviously born in Scotland and, you know, London and moving over to Oz, that's, that's quite an eclectic journey there in itself. And uh, as we all know, working away up the legal ladder isn't, isn't uh, an easy, an easy, an easy challenge. Mm. For I've noticed on, on your, on some of your posts around your um, the importance you put on authenticity, mental health. I'm, I'm a mental health advocate myself as well. And yep. I, I've, I've kind of talked quite candidly about my journey around my uh, abused childhood and uh, lots of different things that happened to me with my mental health and losing my business and all that kind of stuff. And I think mental health and well-being is 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 really prevalent. But I think the power of being open and being vulnerable and telling your own story and my, my view is everyone has mental health so I'd, I'd quite like to mm-hmm. delve a bit deeper around not just kind of the, the mechanics of your career but you as a person how you've evolved and any kind of you'd like to share any sort of adversity or trauma you'd like to share with the with, with the audience yeah so growing up with Indian parents culturally there's very little talk about mental health. So, you you know, you're told to be strong, for example. I remember, I think when my granddad passed away, I think I was 19 at the time, and I remember having family friends come over to, you know, um, uh, uh, to uh, sort of grieve with us, and they pulled me aside. One of them pulled me aside and said to me, you've got to be strong Mm. for everyone else because I was the oldest child as well. And my, I'd never seen my dad break down and he broke down because it was his dad that had passed away. And so it really, um, it really hit me. I didn't know what to do with that. It was the first time I'd really experienced death close up. 
And I sort of took it and went, okay, that's my role. Mm. I've got to be strong. So mm. I remember vividly going uh, into the backyard. My grandparents used to live in a granny flat in our backyard. And I remember going into their granny flat to pick up something um, and walking. And as I walked in the door, I saw his shoes at the front door. And it just threw me. I don't know what it is about seeing someone's shoes, but it's very... I don't know, it's a very real reminder of that person having been there very recently and no longer being there. And as I walked in, I literally just collapsed in tears and was just overwhelmed. But, you know, because I'd been told to be strong, it was, okay, I can break down here mm. and then I've got to pull myself together and walk back in and be everyone else's shoulder yeah. to cry on. Yeah. And so I think this sort of attitude of being strong and keeping it together kind of then stuck with me for many years. And so, you know, I had, uh, for example, quite a few issues when I went to London and when I worked in uh, a law firm over there. Um, I had a particular partner that for some reason just didn't seem to like me and he was quite awful to me. Um, I was working ridiculous hours. It was, you know, mentally and physically extremely exhausting. But, you know, you just kept keep going because that's what you're told to do. Yeah. And so I kept doing that. I kept doing that when I moved from there to Sydney with a law firm as well and, you know, just always held everything in. And for me, the turning point really was when I had miscarriages uh, a few years ago. So I'd had my daughter and then I didn't try for a few years because I had a what I then looked back and realised was postpartum after I'd had her. Um, so I had a pretty difficult time with her post-birth. And then so we tried again about three years later and I had a miscarriage. And it was quite a traumatic miscarriage because it was what's known as a complete molar pregnancy. And so you not only have you had a missed miscarriage, but you then have to wait wow. for at least eight months before you can try again. And there's a risk that you might develop placental cancer. So I had this all hanging over my head um, and I had really thought, you know, we're going to have another baby because I've had, not, I've had one before. This will be easy. So we told our three-year-old daughter as well. So we had to untell her. Mm. And so that was really traumatic for many, many, many months. And again, I didn't really talk to anyone. I just kind of kept yeah. going yeah. as if nothing really had happened. Whereas really for about, I don't know, eight, nine months, I just lived it. Like if not every day, it was every second day it was on my mind. You know, and I was almost counting down the days until I could try again. And then we tried again. And this time I was incredibly anxious. And I had also just been promoted. Um, so I was managing a team, trying to build a team because we were under-resourced. And then I found out I was pregnant two weeks after I was promoted and so really anxious and kind of in two minds because I was like, oh, this doesn't feel like the right timing either, mm -hmm. having just been promoted. But then on the other hand, I was like, but I want this. But is it going to happen? And so I had all these conflicting thoughts going through my head. And then we went to our first scan and everything was fine. Went to the second scan one and a half weeks later and again I'd miscarried and so I had to have surgery that afternoon. Anyway, I again kind of kept going as if nothing had happened Yeah, and went traveling and, you know, did all sorts of things. And I was incredibly busy with work. 
as well. And it was only probably three months after that I was sitting with someone and ironically I had been developing a mental health awareness program for the organisation for the past year and a half, right? So it had all this going on whilst I was developing this program with an external provider. And she was sitting with me and we were talking through, you know, program-related stuff and all of a sudden she stopped and she looked at me and she said, Niti, are you okay? And, you know, my auto automatic response was to go, yes, I'm fine. Mm. But I actually stopped in that moment and went, oh, my God, no, I'm so not okay. I'm really not okay. Like I've, I, I've been a zombie for months just you know working on autopilot almost and you know it's it's so hard because I think when you're holding all this within you what tends to happen or what what I found happened was I was trying so hard to hold it together at work that when I came home everything just burst right and it was like all my emotion all my anger all my frustration was unleashed at home yeah, and, you know, which is not good for anyone, not good for me and not good for my family by any means. Sure. And so in that moment when I finally acknowledged that I wasn't okay, it was like this, just this floodgates and I was able to Mm. go, okay, you know, what are all the things that are going on for me? And it wasn't even just talking about the miscarriages. It was... Mm -hmm talking about things, other things that were happening in my life and had happened over the past year or two years. Of course. Um, or even further back than that. And for me, that was a real, that was a, a real turning point in terms of vulnerability and mental health and actually talking about it. And in that moment, I realised how powerful it can be to share what you're going through totally. with other people. It, it just, yeah. even though, you know, nothing would heal the pain of these losses, the sheer fact that I'd had that conversation with someone, it, it, I just felt my shoulders loosen and just, you know, drop yeah. a little bit. I just felt relief from it's being good. able to speak openly about it. And so from that moment on, you know, it, it's been a journey to becoming more and more and more vulnerable and open about things that I'm going through and interestingly the journey for me on LinkedIn has it's again it's it's allowed me to open up even more so you know it's interesting just you know as you write or as you talk to people Mm. you just think about incidents in your past and you go actually there's something here I need to deal with you know absolutely this conversation that I had has really stuck with me for some reason and it's informed the way I live my life. Mm. And I need to break that because I haven't addressed it. And so for me, the last year and a bit has been, you know, about doing some of this deep work to sort of yeah. really unpack what's happened in my life. Well, thank you for that. I absolutely love listening to every single word of it. And there's so much that I can relate to and quite a lot I can pick up on around, obviously, the death of your grandfather, uh, I'm sure there was a lot of issues in that working environment for your um, uh, kind of your background and your your, your feminine person in, in, you know, in in that environment. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff you want to delve into there as well, but also um, the miscarriages, all that kind of stuff. But 
one thing I picked up on there where you where, where you had that turning point and the, the per, and you said you was a zombie for months. I think this goes way back, not just even the event of your grandfather dying, which is monumental, but the person who told you to toughen up. That has mm. that has stuck with you for, for years and decades, and you've kind of kept it in. And that's and that's that's. I think it's sometimes it's not just the events that cause us to do yeah. certain things. It's 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 how we attack, how we how we approach them, how we respond to them. And it's great you've got that now, but you know the, the approach now of being open and vulnerable because that's that's what I passionately believe in. But I mean, I, I don't think you can comprehend how much that advice that wrong advice or that advice you absorb has affected you? What do you think? Oh, absolutely. It 100% did. And, you know, it's culturally, it's kind of the expectation. But I think to have someone say it out loud to you, when you're personally dealing with something mm. quite difficult and emotional, mm. it it really impacted me. And, you know, I I, I didn't like I remember even um it was interesting when I um first started uh dating my husband a few weeks in he said to me can you please open up more I am sick and tired of having to ask you how you feel (laughs) because you're not giving me anything and really like you know honestly like I do think that that conversation that I had with that person I don't even remember who it was to be honest I just remember having the conversation yeah yeah but um that conversation really stuck and it you know, it just became this yardstick, right? This thing yeah. by which I, this, I don't know, but I just, now, but now you're left. not sharing. Yeah, and now you're left with, um, I'm not going to ask how old you are, but probably a couple of decades of, of un- unraveling and rewiring that those neural pathways. And it's kind of like, wow, you've got a lot of work to do, but actually doing the work is, is, is the growth, isn't it? And you, you kind of got, at least, at least now you're accepting it. And it's, I think that's, maybe helps you to frame some of the, the the guilt and shame and stuff we put on each on, on ourselves around when things go wrong in our life we kind of blame us when we get older a bit wiser we look back and think actually i'm not trying to blame other people but that that these might be the reasons why i've been like this and you kind of like ah oh, mm. a light bulb moment do you not think yeah no absolutely it's you know, what really interests me is that a lot of people that speak really vulnerably whether, you know, in talks or on LinkedIn mm. or whatever other platform, often have had some traumatic experience that they've dealt with in the past. And so um, there are a lot of people like, you know, that I speak to that have not in the past been sharers and have over yes. time yes. become sharers. And mm. it's incredibly powerful, I think, when you realise that you've done yourself a disservice Mm. by not sharing and by not talking all those years. And, you yeah. know, back on even my experience in law firms and just, you know, putting a brave face on everything and just being like, I'm okay, you know, I'm I'm fine, I'm coping. It's, it's, you know, I, it, you just, yeah. I think, I think there's a misconception though. I think, I think part of the reason why people don't do it is because they feel as if you're, we're trying to curry favour or seek sympathy. And actually, I know from talking to you, your motive is purely... It's purely to help yourself, but also to help others. That's what I honestly believe. And I think the more people that can do this, and the more people champion this this approach. And there's also there's also two schools of thoughts, though, isn't there? You know, you, you can talk about it till till you're blue in the face or till the cows come home, whatever the whatever phrase you want to use. But, but surely there has to be a point in time, right, where come on, I've 
opened up enough. I've talked about it enough because aren't, aren't we in danger of kind of just being stuck in our story as well? What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And I think, you know, it depends on, uh, it depends on what you do with your story. So if I look now back at my miscarriage story, so two years ago, uh, actually three years ago when I had my last miscarriage, after that point, I had decided to myself at some point in time I needed to talk about this because I was blown away by the fact that no one had told me about their own miscarriage stories mm. until I had had mine. And for me, that was overwhelming. I was like, this is, like, I wish people had spoken to me about this before. Why only now are they speaking to me about it when I've had my own? I needed to know this before. I needed it to be a bit more normal, totally. right? And, you know, so to me, I'd always from that point decided I wanted to talk about it, but I'd never quite gotten up the courage to do it. And I kept having these moments where I was like, I'm going to do it today. And then I'd pull out again and go, no, I can't do it. And so for me, it's been this real journey of, you know, that moment where last year I decided, okay, I'm going to share it. And I shared it and it was out there. And then from then, each time I talk about it, it became different. Like I, I wasn't as, like I'm still emotional about it. Yeah. But there's a deeper purpose now to why I'm sure. sharing it. Definitely. And now the purpose is not so much about my own healing, mm. but it's about helping other people to heal. And it's taken a whole new dimension, which for me is, well, what organizations are out there that operate in this space and how can I partner with these organizations to do something, to proactively help, right? So it's gone to that next level. And I think this is where, you know, if you can take your story and and do something with it, yeah. that doesn't mean you're stuck in the emotional vortex that is that story. Absolutely. But you take it and you go, okay, I'm going to help other people, or I'm going to, you know, make something out of this and change something mm. in society or whatever it is, then I think you're still yeah. growing. You're still growing that story and you're taking it somewhere. That's a really good way of framing it, framing it because it actually even – I talk about it, like, very regularly and I always get something from that. And I don't think you can ever – I think when you say healing, I don't think you can ever really heal from those wounds that you talked about. I mean, there's no point in comparing. You know, there's always someone that's got worse um, adversity, but, you know, the, the stuff that you've mentioned is is, is huge. But I, I feel as well – I feel you're right. I feel, I feel it's about – it's about teaching others how to, to, to grow and heal as well. But also yeah. um, when someone asks me how I am, I don't go, yeah, I'm okay. Honestly, if uh, nine times out of 10, it doesn't matter who it is. I'll actually tell them, actually, I'm feeling a bit anxious today. And some people think that, you know, why are you being like that? And actually, I think, yeah. why not? Because, because more, yeah. as you say, the more, the more you do that, you, you get it back from the other person. And that's how you form connections and bonds. It's that authenticity. Exactly. It's a hundred percent. And, I, you know, in many ways, am so glad that I had this conversation with that person because my whole attitude towards leadership, towards parenting, everything has changed from that moment. Because I'm like, I don't need to pretend I'm okay all yes, the time. Exactly. You know, and this for me was a big thing last year. It was, you know, you need to be transparent about how you're feeling. Mm. Because when you're transparent about how you're feeling, you give other people permission to be transparent about how they're feeling. Yeah. You know? And so it opens up that conversation and it does, it just builds 
relationships and trust in a way that not much else does, right? It's, yeah. you know, you're really putting yourself out there. Um, and I think if you lead with that as a leader yeah. in particular, yeah. it, it just leads to very different relationships. There's a lot of mistrust in this world. And I think, you know, this is an area I think we can yeah. do better. Now, you talked about, obviously, the, the, the death of your grandfather, and you, you did very quickly touch on some of the issues in your workplace. Not, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, that was a challenge. I'd like to learn a bit more about that and also your, your partner at the time, if that's okay. Just, just talk me through some of the emotions you've, you've had to deal with, and then we'll talk about some of the great work you're doing now as well. But I just want to delve a bit deeper around, I mean, <sighs> for me personally, I, I, I probably felt I've had mental health issues to a degree, Um from like the age of four or five or six for various reasons and I don't mind, mm. don't mind missing that and that's because I felt inferior and uh, not worthy and for, you know a multitude of reasons but can you talk to me about you've mentioned mental health but I think some of the best mental health advocates and people out there not the ones that are necessarily qualified are the ones who've had that lived experience and own it yeah 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 no exactly and look I think you know, you're right. I think a lot of this stems from early years and I think the the way, not, not just how you're brought up, but just your experiences in your early life as well. And for me, um, I was always a high achiever. Mm. And so, you know, there was very much this mindset of, you know, you can't fail. You know, you can't get 9 out of 10. You've got to get 10 out of 10. Yeah. And so... This for me, I think career-wise and school and education-wise was a big driver, right? This um, fear of failure, this drive for perfectionism, all of that, which is not uncommon in fields like law, right? Um, So that was very much a driver. And so when I moved to London, I'd been doing well in my education, in my career until then. And I moved to London and I was put in an area of law I didn't know anything about. And so I was really relying on other people to give me guidance. I was quite junior at the time. I think about maybe, I don't know, four four years out of um, law school. Mm-hmm. And so I was relying on more senior people to tell me what I should be doing because I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. And six months into my time in London, I had a probationary chat with this partner. And I will never forget, it was the most surprisingly like just awful meeting. I sat down. He didn't sit down. He stood up. So he was towering above me, mm-hmm. having this probationary chat with me, which I thought was just going to be a simple, you know, you're through your probation. Excellent. Let's go. Keep going. Yeah. Um, but no, he decides to tell me that uh, because I wasn't billing enough hours that there was a, and, and, and that I had taken more sick leave than other people, that there was a perception that I was lazy. And he did this whilst he pretended to swing a golf club. So he wasn't even looking at me Wow! as he, as he said all of this to me. Yeah. I sat there and I'm like, one, I can't believe what you're saying. Are you telling me you think I'm lying about taking sick leave, number one? You know, like I'm just yeah. what, at home doing nothing because I want to be at home as opposed to having moved from another country and perhaps that has affected me from a health perspective. Um, you know, so there were all these things and this, you know, this whole emphasis on billable hours and targets mm. in mm. law firms. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just horrible because it 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 breeds a culture of inefficiency, of Absolutely. presenteeism. 
Totally. Of long hours for the sake of long hours. It's just, oh, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Right? Back, and back, so I'm, back, sorry, go on. There you go, you go. So, I mean, <laughs> back then, it, it, you could, they could get away with that kind of stuff. It was acceptable. It was like, it was a badge of honour. It was a badge of honour to, to work. Yeah, it was. But also, yeah. you know, visualising him doing that. The, the, the arrogance and the kind of, the, the, the unnecessary way that he delivered that it was like almost like the, su- the superiority of like you know it's just like mocking mocking it i mean it's just it was it was terrible and i was in so much shock i didn't even know how to respond to him because i was almost just stunned by what was happening um but i did you know i sort of you know said uh, well, asked him do you think i'm you know i'm, I'm taking sick days when I'm not sick because I'm not, I've actually been sick and all of these things. But the fact that I had to defend myself in that way, six months into a job in a new country, you know, I was by myself over there. Um, so it was, it was a lot mm. to deal with. And over the next couple of years that really carried forward in the way that they treated me. So it was, you know, you're in Australia and you have to work harder. Um, I asked to go, uh, I'm come on a Saturday to um, spend the day with my husband because it was his 30th and I'd organised a trip away. So I said to him, I've got tickets booked on the um, the uh, Eurostar for the the Saturday. So um, can I not work on Saturday? It was a, there was a big deal. Mm. Um, I'll work on the Sunday. I'll work on the Friday. Like I'll work all around it. I can even come in and work after I come back on the Saturday. I just don't want to work for that period of time. I'm supposed to be away. Yeah. No, you need to work on a Saturday. And then it came up in my appraisal and they said to me, you know, we own your time. We pay you enough to be able to have you at our beck and call as and when we want. And so this whole attitude, it just it informed the way I was able to live my life or not live my life. You yeah. know, it was very much, you couldn't plan anything. You couldn't, you, know, you couldn't have a life. I couldn't even spend time with my husband when I wanted to spend time with him. And so all of this just made me really anxious because I was like, I want to have a family mm. at some point in time. This doesn't work for me with yeah. a family in tow as well, you know. And so... It was really hard. And then I moved back from London to um, Sydney and it was more of the same. Um, So same sort of attitude. I think it was yelled at once when I was going back from Sydney to Melbourne because I'd put an out-of-office on. It's like, what's the problem? I'm driving through Alpine country over the weekend and it's my birthday. I'm not going to be on call all weekend, you know, but... But this is this attitude, I think, that pervades some of these uh, very sort of old school, traditional type professions. Unfortunately, I think it's still there to an extent today, unfortunately, or to a large extent today. Yeah, I think the whole presenteeism, you know, it's a a society kind of educational kind of indoctrination that's gone back for, you know, years, decades, centuries that even to on a sexist level the man should go out and, and earn the money the woman should stay at home or that's yeah. that kind of then passed and it was like doesn't matter if you're male or female you, you you're once we've got you you're here now you work you work from eight till you till till you're dead kind of thing is whereas now but now but i think thank, thankfully even covid has probably helped a little bit in terms of 
the awareness around mental health and well-being the, the awareness yes the whole nine to five thing is just i think it's such a dying breed the work from home work from anywhere thing and if anything there's a lot of positives around actually yeah uh, all that kind of stuff what do you think Absolutely. I think it has definitely been good for mental health conversations, I think, in general. And I think the fact, I actually wrote something about this the other day because I was reflecting, I had a conversation with my dad over, I think it was last weekend, and he was talking to me about the impact of lockdowns because in Australia we're going in and out of lockdown like yeah. you know, every second week pretty much. Um, and so he was talking about the impact of lockdown on his mental health. And... The conversation stunned me because, as I said before, it's not something we talked about mm. as a family growing up. And so the fact that, you know, someone like my dad who's grown up in a quite traditional culture, you know, uh, where they don't talk about these things can now talk about it more openly is, I think, a huge step forward yes. for mental health issues. And I think we will definitely see that, I think, especially in countries where mental health hasn't been big on the yeah, agenda, totally. but there have been a lot of mental health issues in the background. Yes. Um, I think definitely, I think there'll be more people openly talking about it. Mm. And I think the step from there is how organisations deal with it. Yes. You know, for me, it's kind of a little bit similar to the conversation around diversity and inclusion. Totally. And it's, totally. it's the talk is good, you know, and the building awareness yeah. is good. Yeah, of course. But you need to take that to the next level and yeah. managers need to be equipped to know how to address these issues and, you know, what their role is, right? Like they don't need to be counsellors, obviously. Mm. but they need to be able to deal with that situation appropriately. And, yeah. and I think that's where I think now we'll see challenges. And I think it's interesting now that um, burnout has become, you know, the, the word of the day, you know, it's everywhere yeah. now. And I think the hybrid model of working um, or yeah. work from home model is good for many, you know, in many respects, I think it's excellent. Yeah. Um, particularly as a parent, I think it's wonderful from that perspective. But I think it it has led to and potentially will continue to lead to some of these other issues as well around burnout and totally. blurring of home and work boundaries and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes, I think, in the coming years. I think it's a necessary change. I think where, where I see it going to the point of not just people talking about it but I think there'll be mental health well-being departments you know because it's mm. the only way to kind of go you I mean you're right there's still a lot of people out there that leaders think oh you know we, we've addressed it or we've we've done something for mental health week or you know we've 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 done a survey on um ethnic whatever you know all that kind of stuff and actually no this is an ongoing thing that isn't going to go away and if COVID is going to be around for for, for a lot longer and I, I just feel that it's a really exciting time and I, I also feel that the currency of working hard and success being money and the size of your car and the house, your job title and status is being replaced with compassion, empathy, understanding, mental health, work, mm, vulnerability. Yep. And, I, and I, for me, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm quite pleased about that. No, me too. I think it's, um, it's fantastic. And I have this conversation with Cheryl a little bit about, you know, the shift and whether there is a shift or there isn't a shift. And yeah. I think there definitely is a shift. Like, and I'm, I'm, I'm quite glad that that shift is occurring and that we are, I think, collectively tapping into a little bit more of our yeah. 
so-called feminine energy versus really? the masculine energy that has predominated for so many, you know, well, I think since, you know, <laughs> I don't, however far back you want to go. Yeah. Right? So I think it's good. That's definitely that's a big good. point. You mentioned about feminine and masculine energy. And, um, you know, I think hopefully going on the days where, you know, leadership teams and boards are dominated by males. I'm, you know, I, I put a post out last week where I, I feel that, you know, there should be, a, you know, having, having female leaders on the board is, is so important, but also encouraging men to talk about uh, their vulnerability and, and their feminine and, you know, get out their feminine energy as well. Cause we all, I mean, as females have loads of masculine energy and men have loads of feminine energy, all, all different yes. levels. And it doesn't make you any less of a woman or a man, whatever you are. And I, I think it's that, that kind of a, that's what's exciting to me is that people are removing the mask that, you know, I used to put a suit on and become this stoic, masculine, ruthless kind of hard nosed individual. And as you said, come home and be like a crying mess. Cause I was so vulnerable. Mm, now, yeah. now I'm just myself. <laughs> yeah. It's liberating, right? It's, um, yeah, you don't have to pretend anywhere. Um, yeah. which is, it's nice, but yeah, no, absolutely. I think this whole, discussion you know and it's it's interesting that we call them masculine and feminine energy and I think sometimes that in itself can be a problem but um leaving that aside I think uh, you know it's it's definitely a matter of everyone embracing both in balance right and you know often I think women can feel like they need to embrace more of their masculine Mm. energy in order to succeed in organisations, and so that becomes an issue, right? Yeah, you know, you hear absolutely. a lot of women that talk about women that they have had as leaders, or even guys who talk about women who've been their leaders and who haven't been particularly wonderful, right? And so, you know, there's this question mark. You know, have they? Is that they're just their personality could be, mm. or have they adapted in a certain way in order to fit this mould of leadership that they believed was the mould they needed to fit? Um, and so I think, yeah, so I think definitely easing that so that they can, you know, women can, I guess, step into whatever their natural personality is and equally having men be open and vulnerable is a big thing. I mean, it interests, it really amazes me with the uh, stories of pregnancy loss. I sometimes have people comment and say, oh, that must be hard as a woman or, you know, they they talk about it from a female perspective. Right, right. Um, and, and I'm like, you know, I think we need to remember that often, not always, but often there are two people dealing with this sure. and they're just dealing with it very differently. And I look back at my experience and my husband at the time and, you know, how we dealt with it differently. I couldn't understand what he was going through. He couldn't understand what I was going through necessarily. And so we were butting heads at the time. Sure. But we were both dealing with it, right? And it does manifest for both people Mm. and so you know it's important for me in that conversation that we recognize that it's not just women that are dealing with it men are dealing with it too and in fact probably go to work and are even less open about it and just pretend that nothing has happened at all whereas women might at least go and say i need to take a few days off yeah right if if nothing else totally i mean as you probably know the the highest um ending of life or suicides are in middle-aged men and i think that's partly because of what you just discussed around the society and the 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 indoctrination of men 
not not opening up and getting on with it and manning up and going to work. But I, it shouldn't yeah. be, there shouldn't be just a distinct uh, shouldn't be distinguished between men and women. It should we're all the same uh, in in that regard. Exactly matter so in terms of the last sort of couple of years and you kind of you, you talked very eloquently about your journey up until then but what was some of the stuff you're doing and you touched on some of the stuff you're doing in terms of uh getting your story out there but just put a bit more context around what you're what you've been doing recently with that yeah yeah so look um as i said the whole linkedin thing and the pandemic i think more than linkedin as well i think because the pandemic really um started my journey for me hmm. um I don't know, it just made me wake up. <laughs> I wrote the other day somewhere uh, on LinkedIn that I was, I felt like I was almost sleepwalking through life until last year. Sure. And it was, you know, just one year after another and then, you know, just keep going and like a hamster wheel mm. and have the children and, okay, they grow up and then it's next year of school and the next year of this and, yeah. you know, and I'd always sort of felt that there was, something more that I needed to do with my life and that there was something missing. And um, I hadn't put my finger on what it was and I just hadn't even really paid too much attention to it. Like it was something I thought about every now and again and went, oh, well, I can deal with that in the years to come. Yeah. And then last year really was a realisation for me that there may not be years to come. If I want to do something, I've got to do it now. And so... Mm -hmm. Initially, you know, writing for me was journaling and it was literally, I need to somehow talk about what's happening and this is just my way to talk about it. And it's it's interesting for me. I'm fairly introverted as a person, but for some reason, writing on a very public platform like LinkedIn is oddly comfortable. Wow. It's it's weirdly, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I don't know why, but it just feels quite comfortable to do it Brilliant. that way. And so... I started doing that and, you know, over time I started realising that actually my stories were hitting other people as well in a certain way and reaching them and, mm. you know, they were sharing their stories back and so I was like, oh, there's something to this that's really amazing. And I, for the first time, felt that that hole wasn't there anymore and I was like, this is what had been missing. You know, I, all these all these thoughts, all these yeah. feelings and stories, I needed to do something with them. I needed to actually, you know, mm. take ownership of them um, and, yeah, and help other people in some way. And so through that, um, there's been the whole miscarriage thing and I've been working, I'm working with an organisation now um, to help support women who suffer from early pregnancy losses. Wow, great. So that's been that's been pretty amazing. And then separately, I think the whole uh, Black Lives Matter thing really affected me last year. Okay. And from a not probably from the perspective you might be thinking, but I realized when it hit, uh, when it all happened, that um, I hadn't been affected by it personally. Like, I've not overtly been impacted by racism. But I've seen my parents be impacted by it. And the first time that happened and the first time I saw it, I was shocked because I'd kind of lived in this bubble of naivety before mm. then and thought, no, no, Australia's not racist. Anyway, so the first time I saw it happen with them, it really impacted me and made me realise, you know, actually, no, this does exist and, it, you know, it is impacting people I love. Mm. 
but I'd never really done anything with it. And so when um, the movement started last year, I started thinking about my own privilege of not having been impacted by it and it's like I need to do something and not just donate money um, but somehow, you know, do something that's going to make a difference. And so I started reaching out to people whose stories I just found really interesting um, because potentially they'd gone from, I don't know, being a lawyer or an accountant or something and moved into not-for-profits. And so I was like, let me reach out to them and, yeah. and see what they're doing and if I can help them in some way. So, you know, not, not necessarily change career path or anything for myself, but just help sure. on the side. And so that's been something that's sort of, you know, a journey I've been on for the last year and a bit. And now I'm helping these organisations on the side, just sort of in an advisory capacity, very, you know, sort of pro bono work for them. But again, these are the little things that are now adding value um, and purpose totally. uh, to my life. I mean, yeah. you, you, you've achieved an enormous amount as a lawyer, uh, working way up to the level that you are, and um, I'm sure that felt wonderful. But I get the sense that this last 18 months or two years where you had that turning point, you started to open up, you started to write on LinkedIn, you did that, um, that hospice thing for the miscarriage and the Black Lives Matter thing and the pro bono stuff. For me, that sounds like your biggest achievement, your best two years, irrespective of all the stuff, all the money, all the job titles you've had before. That's what, yeah. for me, that's what excites me about you and people like you around uh, that fulfillment piece. What do you reckon? Yes. It's really true. Um, I read this uh, great quote actually in a in one of my daughter's books the other day. Um, she's got the Goodnight Rebel Girls um, books, right. and so there's a quote by Audrey Hepburn, and in it, in that quote, she talks about the fact that you know, as you get older, you realise that you have two hands: one to help yourself and one to help other people. Mm. And you know, it really resonated with Love me. That. So I was like, this is what I have learned yes. over this last year and a half or two years, you know, whatever mm. it is, that there is, you know, you can, I can give back because, you know, often you think about giving and you're like, I could give money. But giving money is very um, unsatisfying because it's kind of just gone. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. You know, there's, there's nothing more to it. Um, and it's very useful, obviously, you know, and don't get me wrong, you know, I give money as well because it's important. Yes. Um, but to give in a different way, I don't know, it's just it's just so gratifying when you can do that. And I've just realised through this last year and a half that I can help myself in helping other people. Totally, totally. I absolutely love that. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. We could talk for a lot longer. I mean, in, in summary... Um, as, as we close, what advice or tips would you like to offer around dealing with mental health, finding your purpose, anything that you could summarise that you've learned along this your journey that you feel you can take forward and help other people with? Yeah, so I think on the mental health side, I would definitely say talk to someone, you know, whoever that someone is, you know, it, it, you, you don't need to be vulnerable by sharing your life story on social media. No, that's definitely not the message. Yeah. Um, you can be vulnerable by talking to, I don't know, a loved one or a sure. friend or 
a counsellor if you need someone that's not a close person yeah. because sometimes people need to talk to someone that's removed from their daily life, right? But I think for me that um, understanding that talking is actually really important has been incredibly powerful and healing. Mm. Um, even journaling, you know, I mean, to the extent you can, you, you don't want to talk to someone but you're willing to write it down, that in and of itself can be very powerful from a self-healing perspective. Mm -hmm. So that would be, uh, I guess, my advice on the mental health front. On the, um, uh, what was the other question you asked me about? Uh, purpose. Yeah. Purpose, yeah. So purpose, so I think this is, this is an interesting one. So when I started looking um, back, I guess, at my life last year, uh, the first thing I focused on was what are my values? And I actually had to stop and go, I don't know. I don't know what my, what, what are my values? What do I believe in? You know, and it took me some time mm. of reflecting to actually try and understand what those actually were. Yeah. And I think, you know, purpose is not something I think you define overnight. I think it's, it's a long journey. Um, but I think doing that work to really try and understand what you care about, I think is really important. And so for me, you know, I, I look back at the last year and I, I go, you know, I always had this sense that authenticity, vulnerability were really important to me. Mm. But some of the other things that I've realised over that year weren't really apparent to me at the very beginning. So the fact that I place such a high value on health, health generally, not just mental health, but health, yeah. Um, wasn't apparent to me at the start of last year, but through the journey, I've realised actually it's so important because when I give time to my own health, um, I am a much better person than if I don't. So I think for me, reflecting is the first step to understanding what your purpose is. I, I totally agree. Taking that time to sort of call it, I call it slow down to speed up. I think someone else coined that phrase, but that the moment when you, when you, you do pause and you do think, and it's not selfish, it's selfless to, 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 go yeah. in, to go in and say, look, you know, who am I? What, you know, what, what am I doing and why I'm doing it? And actually that self-love, that self-care, then you can be the best version of yourself for other people as well. I, I love everything you said. It's, it's been, a, it's been a, a joy and a pleasure and very educational to, uh, to, to chat to you. Um, where can, where can people find you? Uh, LinkedIn is obviously the best place to, <laughs> to find yeah. me. Um, I'm there quite often. So yeah. Good stuff. Well, I'll leave you be in sunny Australia. Thank you so much. I'd lo love to do a follow-up in a few months' time. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm sure uh, Likewise. the listeners will love it. Thanks so much, Nissy. Thanks, Chris. The Purpose-Led Leadership Podcast is sponsored by Vincherry, the recruitment operating system used by 20,000 recruiters worldwide. I chose to partner with Vincherry because I'm a customer. I love their single tech platform to streamline the front, middle, and back office operations of executive search, perm, contract, and temp businesses. If you're looking for a new breed of tech partner, talk to Vincherry. They have Follow the Sun support with seven offices around the world. Check them out at vincherry.io forward slash Chris O'Connell for an exclusive offer for all listeners. Thank you.